white as driven snow, cypress black as air was crow, gloves as sweet as damask roses, masks for faces and for noses, bugle bracelet necklace amber, perfume for a lady's chamber. So we have uh, our next guest with us, Ross Duffin. Uh, he's a native of London, Ontario. Ross W. Duffin is Distinguished University uh, Professor and uh, Finette H. Coolis Professor of Music Emeritus at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. A winner of the Thomas Binkley and Howard Meyer Brown Awards from Early Music America and the Noah Greenberg and Cloud V. Poliska Awards from the American Musicological Society. His scholarship on early modern English songs is best known from his Shakespeare's Songbook and Some Other Notes, The Last Songs of English Renaissance Comedy, a monograph on songs in English tragedies in progress. He has also published widely in historical performance practice, including on musical iconography, historical pronunciation, theory, notation, improvisation, and tuning, the latter most notably with the monograph, How Equal Temperament Ruined Harmony and Why You Should Care. Duffin is also Artistic Director Emeritus of Choir Cleveland. Hi, Ross. It's wonderful to have you back on the show. Good to see you again, Daniel. Not talking about O Canada this time. Yeah. So um, this is wonderful. This is going to be quite a unique production, uh, video production, our first video production uh, with uh, interviews and the podcast. And this will be in collaboration with the SSO the, and uh, the festival with the Shakespeare in Stratford. And uh, we'll be getting into uh, your books and research and everything around Shakespeare. It's wonderful work you've done. And uh, we're pleased to have your expertise here with us. I'm glad to be with you. So um, let's just start. I think our viewers, if you haven't uh, actually uh, gotten to know Ross, uh, we did a production last year on O Canada. It's a wonderful uh, podcast uh, episode, and I'll make sure to link that. Please go and listen to that. It's it's uh, absolutely wonderful. Now, um, I'd like for our viewers, if they have new viewers, to get to know you. Uh, Ross, could you talk a little bit about who you are, uh, what you do, your research, your background, and uh, what led you to be inspired to write these uh, wonderful books. Right. Well, um, as you mentioned, I was born in London, Ontario, and mostly grew up there, lived in other parts of Canada a bit as well. But um, it was 40 miles from the Stratford Festival in Ontario, and, uh, and my mother was a big Shakespeare fan. She had been to the Stratford Festival um, at its first year when it was still in a tent before the theater was built. And so she um, she brought my sister and me to see virtually everything that was going on at the Stratford Festival during the time that we were, we were growing up. So that was my background. I got to see a lot of Shakespeare when I was a young person. And um, I went to Western as an undergraduate. And when I was there, in fact, uh, Bert Carrier, uh, who was the longtime music director at uh, Stratford, was doing a master's there. So I, I knew him. I don't know that he knew me, but I, I knew who he was. Um, and then I began to specialize in early, early music or music from earlier periods. And I wondered, here I had all this background in Shakespeare, but I wondered why I was never hearing music from Shakespeare's time. And it was just in the back of my mind. And then one day I saw a line from The Winter's Tale that said, 
the news, Ruggiero. And I thought, well, that's really funny. Um, Ruggiero is the name of a ballad tune from Shakespeare's era. It's very funny he would use that name for a character. And he doesn't use it again anywhere in his plays. He doesn't even use it again in Winter's Tale. And, um, and then I saw the reply said, oh, such a deal of wonder has broken out that ballad makers should not be able to express it. And I thought, now that is really strange. Here's Shakespeare using a ballad tune title as a name and then drawing attention to it with this reference to ballad makers. So I did some investigation and found out that there was a ballad that had a plot that paralleled the plot of the Winter's Tale. And in fact, it ended badly with the jealous husband killing his uh, um, supposedly unfaithful wife and her lover, even though they were innocent. And I realized that Shakespeare was drawing the audience into that moment by citing a ballad that they probably knew and knew uh, uh, ended badly. And, and they thought probably that Winter's Tale was going to end badly as well. And I realized there was a whole layer of meaning that modern audiences didn't have because we just didn't know the the popular song repertoire. So that's how I began. Um, and then eight, eight and a half years later, um, uh, Shakespeare's songbook appeared. And I got interested in um, uh, what was going on around Shakespeare as well. So that uh, out of that grew uh, some other note, the lost songs of uh, early of uh, English Renaissance comedy. Um, and um, found many, many songs that, um, that were being cited and and sung in uh, in these plays. Um, another thing that I did in Shakespeare's songbook was to figure out that uh, there were no um, composed settings of a lot of these songs, and that they don't survive. And we've for a long time thought that well, they just you know were lost over the years. But what I figured out was that many of them were using rhyming words and keywords from existing songs, and so that. Shakespeare and his fellow playwrights were writing their song lyrics with existing songs in mind. And so that was a, that was a bit of a eureka moment as well. And so that, that's all in Shakespeare's songbook and some other note as well. So that's really interesting. And um, I myself, I don't know much about Shakespeare and this is all very new to me. So it's, uh, it's absolutely uh, intriguing to learn more about it. Now, could you dive a little bit deeper, perhaps, into how uh, music was used in Shakespeare's uh, plays and, and what kind of resources uh, were available uh, to be used in these plays? Right. Well, um, there are songs that Shakespeare inserts in the plays, uh, and he, he's very helpful, or his editors are helpful, uh, in that they're often labeled song and printed in italic, so they're set apart from the dialogue um, in the text so we can we can tell what the songs are. So there are maybe three dozen or more of those uh, songs that are in the plays. Um, but um, the big difference to me of the theater from Shakespeare's time um, is that there was no underscoring. I remember when I was an undergraduate, I had a classmate named Stan Fisher, who is now out in Nova Scotia. And he was a clarinetist, wonderful clarinetist. He got hired by the Stratford Festival um, to play uh, music for I think it was Othello and he went to Stratford expecting to spend the summer there and um, after a few performances they told him that they wanted to record him doing his his uh, playing and then they would just play the recording and that way the director could have the recording faded up and faded down and inserted wherever they wanted and and uh, I, I see that as a kind of a turning point um, where directors began to see that they could use music in the same way that movies and television 
for using music to, to move the audience, to tell the audience what they should be feeling, to anticipate things that are coming. But, but in Shakespeare's day, they, they didn't have that at all. There, there was um, music only when someone with the skill um, had the opportunity to uh, perform on stage or just off stage. And so I think a big difference from theater uh, uh, today and Shakespeare's day was the, the idea of silence, that silence is used as a kind of, um, of actor, as a character in a way, that uh, it's, it's impressive in itself. And when music happens, it becomes a kind of not only a special moment, but a, actually a magical moment. And the audience responds to the music. I mean, imagine there's no music at all. And then all of a sudden music appears and it's, it has that much more effect because of that. So the performers, the, the actors who would uh, have the talent of playing an instrument, would they play a sort of ad lib uh, during the performances or were there interludes? in between where the play would kind of stop and then they'll go into a musical moment uh, and then they continue, is it? Yeah, it's not clear. There, there are one or two plays where they mention um, instruments playing. And there's one I think of, can't remember what the title is right now, but it mentions that there's music playing. And then every few lines of dialogue, it says music is still playing. So the, the fact that they have to keep saying this uh, suggests that that's a very unusual circumstance, that it didn't usually happen that, that music was going on uh, during the speaking. And, I mean, um, if you can't fade it down, then music can easily cover the spoken voice. So um, uh, I think music happened maybe as an interlude between scenes sometimes. Um, if there's some kind of a dancing uh, thing going on, then there could be music. For that there could be music for fanfare certainly um the most commonly cited musical instrument in uh shakespeare is the trumpet trumpets are used for fanfares over a hundred times in shakespeare's plays but they're not making music in the same way it's just um it's just serving the function of a fanfare um there are also shams uh the loud double reed instrument he the shakespeare calls them hoboys um probably from the french hobois loud woodwind instruments, and they were the staple instruments of town bands and uh, also the royal wind band um, because they were loud and could be heard in large halls and outdoors and so on. Um, and I, I've made a point in one of the articles I wrote that um, I think there's a good case to be made for a consort of uh, soft instruments that was a kind of a standard band for um for plays at this time. And it consists of two bowed string instruments, a violin or a treble viol and a bass viol, um, a woodwind instrument, a flute or recorder, and um, a wide ranging soloistic instrument, the lute, and then two wire strung instruments, the citron and bandora that functioned as a kind of rhythm um, section, like rhythm guitar or something like that. Um, and there are several references to those instruments being um, played in the theater, sometimes before um, the theater. Well, okay, if the, if the instrumentalists are there and they're playing a little performance before the, the play starts, do they go home or do they stick around and do other things? That's, um, you know, it's a question. Um, and some of those same instruments are actually bequeathed by um, actors. So we know that um, Augustine Phillips, for example, bequeaths Three of those six, three or four of those six instruments to uh, to his various apprentices when he dies. 
Um, so I think I think that that was a kind of a if there was such a thing as a standard pit band, um, that would be that would be it. Of course, they were not in a pit. Um, that, that's a, another thing. We think okay, well, you have the instrumentalist down front in the in the pit, but in fact, um, most of the descriptions of music making say in the early days at least say music within, which I think means that they were in the tiring house just behind the stage on the on the main stage level perhaps hidden by a curtain. There are depictions of, of stages from the time that, um, that show a curtain. And so I think probably the musicians were right there, close enough to be heard by the actors, um, and maybe even an accompanist, a lute accompanist, um, could be back there or on the stage. It's funny that um, lute doesn't get mentioned. It's the most common accompanying instrument for song at the time, but it, it rarely gets mentioned um, as accompanying singing, it, it does get mentioned a couple times. I can think um, in Henry the Eighth, there's a line, "Take thy lute, wench, sing." Okay, so that's a specific thing. And in one of the bad quartos of Hamlet, they call them bad because the text is somewhat corrupt, but it's very descriptive when it says that enter Ophelia um, singing to a lute, her hair down streaming, or something like that. Well, that sounds like something that somebody has seen actually seen on the stage. And it says that Ophelia was singing and accompanying herself on the lute. So um, maybe it happened more, and we just don't have the descriptions. Um, but we do have those um, those couple of mentions. So that that sounds uh, uh, close to probably the actors would be actor performers, or the the solo actor would be the one that has some experience with the lute, and then they have a backup band in the back and that they would accompany that soloist perhaps the lute or the viol and uh yeah and and do you think that the composers were involved with with uh composing or perhaps giving a preset of of, of tunes or directions uh to be improvised uh during okay let me let me take the first point that you <laughs> you raised there first the actors i believe very much that the actors were highly musical um, you know, we think of, oh, well, the actors of Shakespeare, the first folio has a page of, of actors of Shakespeare's plays and include names like um, George Bryan and Thomas Pope. They were also sharers in the Globe Theater when it opened in 1599, but they had been on the continent with, uh, with Will Kemp and Lester's men. And on the continent, they were described as tumblers, jugglers, actors, song and dance men. And I, and I think that that actors of that period simply uh, were expected to have musical talent and expertise, and they would just jump in and do whatever needed to be done, and also to sing uh, sing song lyrics to tunes that fit the uh, fit the lyrics. Um, as I was saying, this brings me to your second point: the question of composers. There are no composers that are mentioned ever in Henslow's diary. Henslow's diary is this. Uh, diary of the manager of the Admiral's Men, which is one of the leading companies, a rival to uh, Shakespeare's company, Lord Chamberlain's Men, um, and it covers a period of several years. And it's meticulous in every little expense that uh, that is incurred by the Admiral's Men. And there is not a single payment to a musician, so that suggests it's the actors that are providing music, nor to a composer. And that's what helps me to think that that they are using this stock of, of tunes that people know. 
in order to provide uh, music for these songs. Um, the only um, musical payments in Hensel's Diary, in fact, are um, purchase of instruments, which happens very, very rarely, but it does happen. But otherwise, nothing to do with music in all of his, um, his diary. And that makes sense to me to, to use popular tunes of the day for the public on stage to express and you know, enhance the theatrical uh, production. Um, now, uh, what kind of songs could you speak about? What type of songs, um, song structures, or were they, um, uh, you know, what kind of quotations or citations? I'm not really sure uh, in regard to that. Could you speak a little bit uh, more in depth on that? Yeah, sure. Um, well, the thing that that um, really struck me is that um, these song lyrics are written in these in certain versifications. We think, oh yeah, it's a song lyric or it's a poem, and it's intended to be sung. But there are very distinctive forms of some of these things, um, and only a very limited number of tunes that might fit uh, such a song. And so uh, that's what. Um, led me to propose musical settings of some of these song lyrics. Um, sometimes only a single tune would fit. And, and oftentimes, as I think I mentioned before, there are rhyming words and keywords in, uh, in the play songs that are actually borrowing figures from, um, from existing songs. So that's what, um, that's what I think they were doing in terms of, of setting the set songs. But, you know, there are Shakespeare, especially, I think even more than other playwrights, has a tendency to quote songs and to cite songs. So he'll cite Dido or Diana or Daphne or somebody like that. And, and he, he's really, he's alluding to a ballad about, uh, about those characters and, and everybody would know. Of course, they know of Dido from, uh, uh, from, um, from the Aeneid, but, um, but most of Shakespeare's audience was not reading the Aeneid, um, but they might very well know the ballad about Dido. So, um, that is something that he draws in. He also has a tendency to, to um, um, quote portions of songs. For example, uh, Farewell Dear Heart from Twelfth Night is a, is a sort of fractured borrowing of a song, Farewell Dear Love, by Robert Jones, who's published in 1600. And another example of that would be um, When Griping Grief, uh, sung by Peter in uh, Romeo and Juliet which is actually a song written by Richard Edwards, who was a, a playwright, a forerunner of Shakespeare, who uh, died in 1566. So here's Shakespeare taking songs that have previously been written and um, quoting them and kind of manipulating them within, uh, within a scene for dramatic effect. Now let's talk about the, the theater itself and the presentation. I know you sent over a, a few uh, wonderful images from past and uh, at the time and the reconstructions of those theaters. And we'll have some uh, images pulled up as you speak. Could you talk about uh, some of the staging? Right, yes, well, the, the outdoor theaters like um, the Globe, um, we don't have any detailed images of the Globe, the interior of the Globe, although we have a pretty good idea of what it looked like. And, and of course now the Globe Theater in London has been reconstructed and it's, something of a, a thrust stage into the middle of a, of a giant O and there's a house behind it with uh, various levels. And as I say, in the original globe in 1599, it's thought that the music was behind um, uh, in the central portion there, sometimes behind a curtain. We have a drawing of 
the Swan Theater, which was another theater in London at the time from 1596, Johannes de Witt. And um, it shows a very similar kind of, uh, kind of thing. Some of the theaters also had a kind of balcony. And this is certainly true. The Stratford Festival Theater, of course, has a very prominent balcony that comes out over the central doorway. Um, and we don't see that so much, but there is there are windows in that level. And it's thought that when they begin to use terms like music room or music above, they're talking about the musicians being in a gallery up above in the central portion. And you see in the reconstructions of the indoor theaters like the Blackfriars Theater, um, which has been reconstructed in Stanton, Virginia, and also the Wanamaker Theater, the new indoor theater at the Globe Center in, uh, in London, you, there is a central balcony-like thing above the central door, and that's where they generally put the musicians. And um, so they were close to the action and could be easily heard by the audience, but, um, but, but rarely um, on the stage itself. This is absolutely fascinating. And uh, so the uh, Stratford Symphony and the Stratford uh, Shakespeare Festival are going to be collaborating on, on some projects. Are, are you uh, involved in this? Are you helping them out set up and realize the music and uh, the performances? What, what, what parts are you taking, if any? No, no, not at all. And, you, you know, it's interesting when my Shakespeare songbook came out in 2004, everyone said, oh, well, now you've identified all these uh, songs and tunes that uh, were used in Shakespeare's time. Everyone will um, will use them going forward. And I said, well, probably not, because uh, there are a lot of ways to set Shakespeare's plays. I mean, the directors are often at pains to show the universality of Shakespeare's plots and characters, and so they get set in in different time periods. It would make no sense to use a Renaissance song if you were setting the play in uh, 1930s Chicago, for example, or you know whatever the director decided to do. So um, no, I'm not involved. I'm happy to consult on uh, on uh, productions, of course, and. Um, the book, my book, I know, has been used, uh, especially for the productions at the Globe in London when they have done uh, historically based um, productions. I know Bill Lyons, who was the historical music advisor there, um, told me that when they did Winter's Tale, they used my book all the time. And uh, so I, I feel like that's how I made my contribution is, uh, is in writing the book and people can use it as they need to. That's absolutely wonderful. And this book was eight years in the making uh, over a collection of uh, 155 songs, ballads and narratives, drinking songs, love songs, and rounds uh, that uh, Ross has been uh, working on. And this is such a huge contribution uh, to, to the 21st century realization of music in Shakespeare. Uh, and I'll include the link uh, to the book uh, so that our viewers can uh, check it out and order some books and, and really get into it. Um, now, before we finish off, Russ, I like to uh, ask, what's in the future for you? Are you? Is there going to be an extension of this? Are you researching uh, or planning on uh, what's next for you? Well, I'm. I have uh, a few projects on the go. I mean, one thing about the pandemic has been that uh, you know, I'm sitting at home working away on my on my stuff and not getting out so much. So I'm being very productive um, during this uh, this strange time. Um, I have an article forthcoming on uh, um, Shakespeare's sonnets and music. It's a very odd thing that there were no settings, musical settings of his sonnets during his lifetime. And so I have an article coming out on that. Um, but the larger project is a book on songs and English tragedy. 
um, over the same sort of period. And uh, so I, you know, I've been working on that for a good three years now, and I expect it'll be another three years at least before I'm finished. But uh, it's a, a continuing fascination for me, and I'm happy to be working away in this area. Well, that's wonderful, and uh, we're looking forward to to seeing what. Uh... Uh, research comes out next and your articles and your books it's been absolutely wonderful thank you Ross it's it's a joy speaking with you and, and I really appreciate your time and expertise on this very interesting topic thanks Daniel it's good to be with you Grief the heart of wound 
Shall I bid him go and spare? 